Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you think curbing emissions from the cars we drive or coal power plants is the cure-all for addressing climate change? Think again. Actually, the food we consume plays a big part. Today, where we live, we explore the impact our diets have on the planet. A study published in the journal Science finds that beef cattle raised on deforested land result in 12 times more greenhouse gases and use 50 times more land than those grazing rich natural pasture. Coming up, we're going to talk to a beef farmer in Connecticut about alternative ways to raise livestock. At least 80% of beef eaten in the U.S. is domestic. And the USDA says this year alone, the average American consumer will eat 222 pounds of red meat and poultry. Is switching to a plant-based diet realistic? Certainly that's not an option in some countries where getting enough food to hungry people is a more pressing issue. But we want to hear from you this hour. Have you thought about changing what you eat to lessen your carbon footprint? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, for more on the impact livestock has around the globe, joining us from Rome is Anne Mote. She's a livestock expert at the UN's Food Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. And welcome to our show. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so we were talking about uh, livestock agriculture uh, making up a big chunk of our carbon uh, output worldwide. But can you talk about exactly how much global greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock? Yes, so we can start by looking at the emissions from livestock in two types. You have the what we call the direct emissions and the indirect ones. Direct emissions are the ones that are coming from rumination of cows and sheep and goats. Uh, so it's in form of methane, enteric methane, as we call it, and also direct emissions coming from um, the manure of the animals. So all these emissions, if you turn them into CO2 equivalent to, to make it easier to understand, are about 4% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions, that means coming from human activities. And then we also look at two uh, indirect emissions. Uh, we know that uh, there are uh, greenhouse gas uh, emitted through the production of feed and forages to, to give to those uh, animals. Um, and these are not directly uh, emitted by the animals, but they can be allocated to uh, what we eat in terms of uh, beef and, and milk or eggs. If we add up all those direct and indirect emissions, um, it's about 14.5% of anthropogenic uh, greenhouse gas emissions. When we look at meat consumption around the world, and how has it increased? Well, um, it's been increasing uh, quite uh, fast, I would say, for at least three or four decades. Um, the reason behind this is, uh, of course, first, uh, the global population, uh, human population that is growing. So more people, more food, obviously, and more animal products. But also the fact that uh, people uh, become uh, richer and richer in a way. The average income at global level is increasing. And we know that when you have more money, you consume more animal products, meat uh, and dairy products in particular. 
Uh, and a, a third reason is also the fact that we live more and more in the cities. Uh, at the moment, we have about half of the human population living in the country and the other half in the cities. But more people in the cities means uh, more access to restaurants, to refrigeration also, to electricity, to, to shops. And that means also more animal products. So the consumption of animal products has been increasing a lot uh, in the past 20, 30 years. And it's still increasing and we expect it to continue increasing in the next uh, couple of decades. In certain parts of the world, uh, that would be a good thing in terms of, of uh, people getting more nutrition? Yes, certainly. Um, actually, at the moment, where the, the, the regions where uh, meat consumption is increasing the most is uh, developing countries. At the moment, we know that um, there are countries in the world where people eat about four kilograms of meat per person and per year. This is very low. Uh, but there are other places in the world where we um, exceed 100 kilograms of, of meat per person and per year. So there's a, a very large diversity of, of diets. Uh, but what uh, concerns us uh, here at uh, FAO is the number of hungry people. We estimate that we have 821 um, million, uh, th sorry, 821 uh, million people still suffering from hunger uh, at this stage, and that this number is increasing. So it's more and more people now that are suffering from hunger, and for these people, animal products can uh, be a very good solution to uh, improve their nutrition in an easy way because animal products are very dense uh, in terms of uh, protein, of course, but also iron, zinc, calcium. So, um, for example, just a glass of milk per day for a kid can uh, improve its nutrition very, very, very dramatically. Uh, you mentioned uh, indirect and direct uh, causes uh, or adding the, the emissions uh, because of, of livestock. So I wanted to get more in depth about that, Anne. So when we're thinking about how uh, we are raising uh, livestock, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or in other countries, um, if you could talk about uh, the, the different processes, including how uh, the feed is, is raised uh, to feed them, um, how uh, livestock are then uh, grown and then processed and transported to places so people can eat them. Yes, so the, the, the diversity of, of diets is, is very large, as we said, but the, there's an, an even larger diversity in the way we produce the, the, those animals. Uh, think about it in, uh, in, in already in terms of species. Um, the livestock species are, are, are very diverse. We, you have cows, you have buffalo, camels, uh, goats and sheep, and uh, they are raised in pretty much every type of environment that you can find on planet Earth, from very extensive and, and, and dry areas like uh, the Sahel in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, to uh, very high mountains in, in India, or um, at the other uh, extreme, very uh, humid and tropical places in Central America, or even uh, more industrial types of farming that we can see in, in, uh, in, in Northern America, for example. So uh, all those types of production systems, like we call them, they rely on different types of, of uh, feed and forages. Um, we know that, for example, in, in, um, in feedlots in, in um, uh, in North America or in uh, uh, Australia, for example, um, animals like beef, they receive a lot of, of cereals, uh, but also um, uh, they, can, uh, they can be fed with um, crop residues and uh, byproducts from the oilseed industry, for example, uh, soy cakes. Uh, in other places, um, those animals, they rely way more on grazing. Uh, so they spend most of their time on a pasture, uh, just uh, feeding from the grass or the leaves um, with a very... Um, 
less rich diets, I would say. Um, and both systems uh, are responsible for, for emissions, but in different ways. This is where we live. Uh, joining us from Rome is Anne Motte, livestock expert at Food and Agriculture Organization at the UN. As we look at how uh, the livestock industry around the globe is contributing to climate change uh, with uh, the greenhouse gas emissions, you know, so often and uh, in this country when we talk about uh, global warming and climate change, we focus on carbon dioxide. But there's uh, the, what you'd mentioned earlier about methane, and can you explain enteric fermentation for us and how? Um, um, again, these livestock are contributing uh, to these emissions? Yes, certainly. Um, so enteric fermentation is the process um, through which uh, the ruminants, so cows, sheep, uh, goats, uh, all types of animals that have uh, different uh, stomachs can digest um, the forage, uh, grass, uh, leaves, uh, straw that we humans cannot eat because we, d we don't have this capacity. But through this process, uh, there is a byproduct, uh, which is methane, that is released by the bacteria that those animals have in their stomachs. And this methane is uh, exuded by the animals in the forms of burps, very, very simply. Um, and this methane uh, is then released into the atmosphere. So it's, it's a natural process of digestion for those animals. But since we have... Uh, multiply the number of animals uh, very uh, significantly recently. We have more and more animals, and f therefore more and more methane being emitted. But there is a, there, there are ways to reduce that, and and we can play on the quality of the forage to uh, decrease uh, the methane emitted uh, from the digestion. But again, it's a natural process that uh, will happen uh, in any case with, with uh, any ruminant. When we think of rising temperatures, and what is methane's impact when compared to carbon dioxide? Is it a larger impact? It is a larger impact um, in two senses. Uh, first, it has a, a higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide. Uh, if you look at uh, a time span of 100 years, um, carbon dioxide uh, would have a global warming potential of 1 as an index, and then uh, methane would be 34. So one molecule of methane in the atmosphere over 100 years uh, has more uh, global warming potential than, than carbon dioxide by a factor of 34. But another interesting thing is that you can uh, reduce methane um, more uh, rapidly because it's, it's half time in the atmosphere, it's, it's shorter. So it, is, it disappears from the atmosphere uh, more rapidly than CO2. So um, everything we do to reduce methane uh, has a very strong impact on how we can reduce climate change. Uh, we were talking earlier and asking our listeners if, if they think about how uh, they should maybe change their diets uh, uh, to help uh, decrease uh, the uh, impact of, of the, the emissions uh, that, that we cause into the environment. And I'm, I'm curious when we hear about how uh, beef cattle um, produce so much methane that uh, the question then is, well, should we eat less beef? But then uh, there's lots of farmers in the world who are raising other um, uh, animals like chickens and pigs. And so what is their contribution when we think of climate change? So it's true that um, because of enteric methane, ruminants contribute more to climate change than monogastric, like pigs or chicken. Uh, but they contribute in any case and in different ways. Uh, monogastric don't release enteric methane, but they use large amounts of cereals and, and, and soya cakes from the production of soya 
uh, that can also um, be responsible of emissions. For example, we know that um, in different places uh, of South America, the production of, of soybean can be associated with deforestation, which is also a cause for climate change. So it's it's um, it's not an easy uh, choice between. Uh, it's not really about switching from beef to chicken. Uh, it, it's it's a more complex, um, uh, I would say, a system to consider and and to look into the different uh, types of production. But uh, I think it's it's a uh, it's a very right thing to 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 ask ourselves as as uh, consumers uh, what 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 is it I'm eating? What is the contribution of of my food uh, to uh, climate change or other environmental impacts? Uh, what kind of information is available to me? And and what what are my choices? Uh, we are lucky in in uh, in Western Europe or in Northern America to be able to make those choices. Um, and it's not the case for for many people who who suffer from malnutrition and hunger who cannot make those choices, uh, not because they don't have the information but simply because they they, they, they don't have uh, um, alternatives to 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 their food so I think I think uh, it's it's a very right thing to do but again having in mind that you 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 have to be informed to make those choices uh, you were mentioning that um, it's not as simple as switching from beef to to other meat uh, because when we think about farming uh, with uh, you know raising pigs and poultry we are also having to produce the food that they eat versus uh, cattle that may graze Yes, exactly. That that's the that's the question. So if if in the end we produce more cereals uh, to to feed more chicken to replace beef, then uh, the solution is 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 not entirely um, positive. Um, and then what do we do with the million of hectares of grassland that uh, and the pastures that cannot be cropped? Um, we estimate at FAO that about two thirds of the pastures and rangelands in the world cannot be cropped. So they 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 just uh, they just can be used to produce grass to feed ruminants. So we have to find the right balance uh, and the right mix in production and in diets. Uh, I mentioned, Anne, that you're with the Food and Agriculture Organization within the UN. And can you talk uh, just briefly about some of the projects that you are working on to reduce carbon emissions from livestock worldwide? Yes, we have um, quite a large number of, of projects for uh, low-carbon uh, livestock production, as we call it now. Um, recently, we have engaged with uh, um, 13 countries in, in South America who have uh, committed to uh, um, to invest in low-carbon livestock production. Uh, so, it's um, for example, we, we have a project in Ecuador um, looking at how to uh, increase the productivity of cows uh, in, in, in Ecuador and restore the quality of pastures, which is another way to to actually limit climate change through uh, storing more carbon from the atmosphere into the agricultural soil. So it's not only about uh, reducing what the animals emit, but also uh, storing the carbon into uh, grasslands, for example. Um, we have another project in um, in Zambia and Malawi, uh, just to give you another example, where we look at how to better integrate crops and, and livestock production uh, by in increasing the quality of the diet uh, of the cows uh, and returning the manure from the cows as fertilizers to the crop fields and therefore um, making the whole system more efficient uh, and reducing overall emissions. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Anne Mote joins us from Rome. She's a livestock expert at the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. Now, coming up, we'll continue our conversation with her, and we'll be talking more about land use and learn about a different approach to cattle grazing that can help reduce emissions from livestock. You can join us too. The number 860 275 7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about how livestock contributes to global warming, and we want to learn more pro- about approaches to lessen uh, the, their carbon footprint. You can join us, too, the number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, joining us from Rome is Anne Mote, livestock expert at the Food and Agricultural Organization at the UN. And I uh, wanted to take a quick call. Uh, ben is calling from Wallingford. Ben, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi. Um I just want to say thank you for doing this show because this is one of the main reasons I switched to a vegan diet uh, 16 years ago. And um, I don't think it's that difficult as people make out and as is done for people in the developed nations to switch to a vegan diet that can be as healthy as anything that's um, based on animal production. And it's, I think it's really imperative that a lot more people do that, given the damage that we've seen done from the hurricanes and the the animal agriculture operations in South Carolina just this month. Well, Ben, thank you for your comment. I wanted to ask Anne uh, from the UN uh, to address your question. Um, and Ben was saying that um, he doesn't believe that it would be hard for people in developed countries uh, to not switch over to being vegan. What's your take on that? Well, I believe that's that's correct. Um, again, we're very lucky in 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 uh, high income countries, like we call them, to to have the choice uh, in in many types of food. Uh, we we can choose from from high protein uh, legumes, plant for to, and we also even have uh, supplements. If, for example, we we're lacking some vitamin B twelve from not having uh, animal uh, products in our diets anymore, we can find those supplements. So it, it is it is uh, definitely possible. Um, and some people even say that it's it's not even more expensive. So if if it's a personal choice to do this, then then uh, by all means, um, if if you th- feel comfortable and informed enough to do it, uh, it's 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 a very good choice to reduce your environmental impact. I think about uh, the income disparities here in uh, this country, um, and while some um, people are able to switch over to veganism, it, you know, it might be a stretch for um, some families uh, to think about um, only buying specific uh, food products and preparing food in, in certain ways. Uh, and in that sense, is that where uh, government comes in with uh, policies uh, to help uh, families if they wanted to make that switch to, to choose uh, this healthier option? Well, I think we're not really there yet. Um, we know in the world that we have about 36 countries who have uh, official dietary guidelines, uh, basically the, the food pyramid, like like we all know it. Um, how much uh, of each type of uh, uh, of food items uh, should you take uh, every day? So it's it's really an, a limited number of countries that uh, are looking into the nutrition already. I think the first step uh, for for governments would be to make sure 
um, that people are educated about food, uh, children to start with in schools, uh, that they have uh, access to information, that they can taste different things, uh, a diversity of, of food, not only uh, not only a vegan diet, but they can they can choose from from a large diversity of of, uh, of items and and well basically educate their, them, themselves on uh, the tastes, but also uh, where the products are coming from and and so on. So I think before everything, the role of, of governments would be on education. I wanted to bring into our, our discussion now uh, Joe Ore Fiche, Dr. Joe Ore Fiche, owner and operator of Hidden Blossoms Farm in Union, Connecticut, because we wanted to get more perspective on on efficiency and land use. And you also are someone who is raising cattle. Uh, Joe, welcome to our show. Thank you. Yeah, you're, for having me on. you're also director of forest and agriculture operations at Yale School of Forestry. And so I wanted to get your take on uh, when we think about New England, we think of dairy farms, not necessarily beef farms. Uh, tell us why that is. Well, dairy in New England was one of the last um, farming systems that kind of made it through the, the hard times that we've seen with New England farming over the last 300 years. It's just been this, this uh, constant change of, of what we grow here, primarily because of where we're competing with um, agricultural products from elsewhere, and um, for a long time, dairy was the was the thing that that, that made it in New England because uh, we couldn't ship milk long distances, and so those were the farms that held out. When you know, in the 1850s and 1830s, it was sheep farming; it was wool that dominated the landscape, and so um, we saw that change when um, we could start getting wool from other parts of the world. Uh, dairy, dairy is essentially what. What lasted, but it's also a big part of our our traditions now and sort of our our landscape view because it's it's what we know. When we think about uh, the big ranches out west, uh, grass resources are scarce. Uh, you're a proponent of grazing rather than feedlot cattle broadly. Can you explain uh, your approach? Yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons I'm a, I'm an opponent of grazing systems is is I always think about the inputs, and we're talking about carbon a lot today. And um, if we're inputting fossil fuels into our food, be it Plants, or um, you know, plants being grown for livestock, that's that's a long-term carbon storage, like millions of years that we're then putting into the atmosphere, as opposed to grazing systems and grasses where where cattle can use their own energy, which is generated from those forages, um, to grow and to actually feed themselves. And so um, that's one of the reasons I, I've been promoting grazing systems. Um, and then the other reason is to to maintain soil integrity. Um, so we want to have our soils um, staying where they are. We don't want them all ending up in the Mississippi River Delta, as we see where much of the heartland is ending up. Um, and so having perennial crops keeps those soils in place. And, you know, um, on, on our farm, one of the things we make sure we do, and there's a lot of farms in the Northeast that, that have adopted this, and I sure didn't invent it, um, but rotational grazing systems where we're actually moving the livestock in response to the um, plant's condition, and so that way when our forages are at a certain level, we're moving the livestock before they're doing any damage, and then allowing those pastures to regrow and recover. So the carbon we're taking off is actually regrowing and, and re, um, being reallocated in plants in about 30 days, depending on moisture conditions, which is very different than um, you know, rangeland systems out west where um, you might have you, you might need 100 acres to support a cow, for example. In Connecticut, you could support a cow on two acres. The technique that you're talking about, it's called silvopasturing? Well, that's one of the things okay. we practice. And so I, I'm really a fan of uh, having a diversified pasture system. And so 
um, having your animals be able to access different conditions depending on their their um, their needs. So silvopasture is the um, integration of trees, forage, and livestock on the same unit of land. And it's an agroforestry practice, and it's it's definitely new to the region. Um, but what it what it provides is some really beneficial animal welfare components in terms of always providing shelter from trees for for livestock. Um, the trees are actually being grown as a crop, so there's a secondary um, source of income there. And then the um, whole system is sequestering more carbon because the trees are more carbon than, let me, let me make this clear, more carbon than an open pasture, a treeless pasture would, because the trees are adding another another place for that carbon to be stored on the landscape. Um, and so when we think about it, um, you're talking about uh, rotation as well. You're not just letting animals loose in a forest. It's very intentional. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the challenges with, with the Northeast is, you know, one of our long traditions has been to just fence off the woods and put the cows in there or put the sheep in there. Or what some people are doing now is just like putting the pigs in there and pretending that they're eating acorns. And um, it's really a shame because that that traditional practice, which sometimes we call just you know woodland grazing, um, is very destructive to soil. It's very destructive to tree roots, and it definitely um, is, is poor for water quality. Um, not to mention the animals often don't have anything to eat in there. And so, so that is that is really common. I mean, there's um, hundreds of thousands of acres of that in the northeast U.S. alone. And there's no forage underneath. And so, so that's a problem because, um, one, it gets confused with silvopasture, which is a system that is actually rather robust and sustainable. Um, but, two, just from an environmental standpoint, has, has led to a lot of, a lot of issues with our, our tree health and our our ecosystem functioning. Um, Anne so, Mo- yeah. Ann Mote is with us from Rome. I just wanted to get her um, perspective on uh, this, uh, these techniques that, that Joe was talking about, Anne. Well, I think he explained very well. I don't have much to add. Uh, he, he seems to be an expert in, in, in civil pastoralism and and, um, and uh, grazing systems in general. Um, I'm, I was just thinking, listening to him, that um, there are even more benefits uh, from the systems than, than just um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions or increasing the, the overall uh, productivity, the overall biomass from, from one hectare. Um, we also know that it's increasing uh, the biodiversity that you find on those hectares, not only from having uh, grass species and, and legume species and trees and the animals, but also uh, because of a mosaic of, of um, a landscape in mosaic forms uh, usually hosts more insects and, and fauna uh, than very uh, um, specialized systems with uh, homogeneous landscapes. So it's, it's a good thing for biodiversity too. And I would even add it's a good thing to adapt to climate change uh, because uh, of the, the, the different uh, depth uh, of the roots from the trees and the grass, then you're using uh, the water resources from the soil uh, more efficiently, uh, more of it. And uh, and also, well, the, the trees, they can provide some shed to the animals. So when you have a bit of drought or heat stroke, for, sorry, heat, um, heat, like, uh, 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 some days that are hotter than usual in summer because of climate change, then the animals can 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 resist better by by finding some shelter. So it's it's uh, it's really um, interesting to see that those systems are also developing uh, in, in the U.S. I want to thank Anne Mote, livestock livestock rather expert at the Food and Agriculture Organization at the U.N., joining us from Rome today. And thank you for your time. 
Thank you for having me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Dr. Joe Orefice will be staying with us. He's a Connecticut beef farmer, owner and operator of Hidden Blossoms Farm in Union, Connecticut, also director of the Forest and Agriculture Operations at Yale School of Forestry. We're going to talk more with him after the break and the National Resource Defense Council. How should we think about the food choices we make if we're concerned about climate change? More on that after a short break, but first it's WMPR's fall fundraising campaign. If you appreciate the different types of conversations we have here on Where We Live. Now's the time to support Connecticut Public Radio. Here's the number to call. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, whales are the largest living animals on the earth today, but did you know they used to be the size of dogs? On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with paleobiologist Nick Pineson about his new book, Spine on Whales. It tells the story of his quest to understand the history of these creatures from the Antarctic to the desert and beyond. You can join us. That's on Monday. Now, today we've been talking about how the livestock industry contributes to climate change and approaches to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions from this sector. On the phone with us, uh, before the break was Dr. Joe Orefice, Connecticut beef farmer and owner and operator of Hidden Blossoms Farm in Union, Connecticut. And joining the conversation now is Allison Johnson. She's sustainable food policy advocate with the Natural Resource Defense Council. Allison, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Earlier, we were talking about uh, the work being done to approve efficiency, produce uh, less greenhouse gases uh, in the livestock industry. Um, But when we think about, um, you know, our individual choices and our listeners who might be thinking about this question, uh, when, uh, what should they be weighing uh, in terms of the food choices they make? Well, yes, beef is the biggest food source of greenhouse gases, so small changes in your diet can really have a huge collective impact. I think this is exciting news, actually, because it means you can fight climate change with your fork. Um, For example, we've calculated that if Americans ate just a quarter pound less beef each week, basically if everyone gave up one big burger a week in the U.S., it would be like taking 10 million cars off the road for a year. So that's a huge impact and it adds up. Beef is uh, 34 times more climate pollution intensive than legumes like beans and lentils. So each meal that centers plants and includes less or no red meat has an outsized beneficial impact on the planet. We were hearing from uh, Anne Mote from the UN earlier talking about um, this idea uh, some may have of, well, just replace uh, beef with poultry, but that also has a trade-off because then uh, certain uh, livestock that are non-ruminants are eating uh, grain feed, and that takes up energy input in terms of fertilizer and land. And so I'm, w- I'm wondering what um, the uh, your organization's take is, because we know that poultry consumption has also grown. Right. Well, there are two pieces there. So first, most beef in the U.S. is finished at feedlots where it is fed the same corn and soy that's fed to other livestock animals. Um, So you don't eliminate that impact and the impact of all of the fossil fuel-based fertilizers um, and chemicals that go into corn and soy production. Um, So beyond that, Beef is about five times more climate pollution intensive than chicken or pork, and chicken is a little bit better than pork by our calculations. Um, That has a lot to do with how long each of the animals lives. And as a side note, chicken is also uh, way ahead of beef and pork in shifting to responsible use of antibiotics. Um, Beef and pork account for about 80% of livestock sales of medically important antibiotics in the U.S. So all around... um, Right now, chicken is looking like a a more environmentally friendly option, 
But keep in mind, we go back to that stat that beef is about 34 times more climate intensive than legumes like beans and lentils. So if you're really looking for a big impact, swapping any meat for legumes or plants in some meals is a great place to focus your energy. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, the number 860-275-7266. Mary's calling from Hartford. Mary, go ahead. I just wanted to also emphasize the significance of production in getting higher quality food. And I think a lot of people overlook the value of choosing organic or reading the labels um, to see if if your milk has come from cattle that is grass-fed or that your beef, um, you know, that you've selected, that you know the producer, that it's that your chickens are uh, are carefully, um, humanely managed, because very few people have really seen um, these uh, mass feedlots up close, and uh, and uh, the use of antibiotics, the caging of animals. I think people would recognize that they don't really want to ingest those foods, and um, there's really been significant improvements in the management, um, and it's all available in your grocery store if you read the labels. Thank you, Mary, for that. Allison, did you want to respond? Sure. You raised some really important points, Mary. Um, If we're thinking about um, the impacts of of beef specifically on climate, um, you know, the first solution is to eat less beef, but beyond that, Um, it's often useful to zoom out and think about the overall impacts of different production models for beef. So feedlots generate an unbelievable amount of air and water pollution, as well as soil contamination, often with terrifying health impacts for the people and communities who live nearby. Feedlot cattle mainly eat corn and soy, as we've discussed. So um, those are grown with massive amounts of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides that are made from fossil fuels. And feedlots also rely much more heavily on antibiotics, a practice that contributes to our growing antibiotic resistance crisis. So you do have these great, well-managed grass-fed operations. Um, Joe was describing some of those practices earlier that can sequester carbon in soil and generate much less overall pollution. So we really think of this as a, a less and better issue. Eat less beef and put those savings toward better quality grass-fed or organic beef when you choose to eat it. I wanted to go back to uh, Dr. Joe Ore Fiche, uh, who is a Connecticut beef farmer, owns and operates Hidden Blossoms Farm in Union, Connecticut. Uh, Joe, uh, tell us about, um, do you feel like consumers are more open uh, to buying your beef? Um, you know, I think some are. I think one of the challenges with um, our, our meat system is to, to buy beef from folks who are grazing and from folks who are able to raise it in the northeast um, where the cost of land ownership is just incredibly high um, they can pay for it and and Ann brought that up earlier is it's almost a it's almost a luxury to be able to eat environmentally sustainable um, because of the cost of raising animals in a, in a sustainable way and, and one of the challenges with that is is that there's a little bit more labor in it and, and fossil fuels are so cheap that we can produce Food, be it be it food that we're feeding to livestock or just food for people in in row crop systems using um, tractors and everything else and, and burning fossil fuel much cheaper than we can pay someone to do that that labor that the fossil fuel is supplementing and so um, yeah so I, I think you know there's a lot of interest in consumers doing it and I think consumers are also finding that the flavor um, 
is is a much better profile than you would find with uh, I guess more conventional types of uh, of food. Uh, we know that um, the federal government subsidizes big ag, uh, but in terms of incentives for small farms, is that something that Connecticut helps with, Joe? Um, I'm, I haven't found a ton of resources in terms of incentives to help um, as a producer, but there are a lot of incentives for conservation. And so sometimes you can, you know, for, I mean, I, I grow vegetables as well, and my first uh, high tunnel was paid for by the NRCS as a conservation mechanism. So we didn't have, because whenever you're growing crops like that, you have open bare soil when between tilling periods and uh, the risk of erosion. So if you put plastic over the top, you can actually, you know, prevent some of that erosion. And, and so the NRCS paid for that. From my perspective, it was, it was just a big boom. It actually paid for the next high tunnel in the following year. Um, so there are ways, there are ways of finding resources to, to help sort of subsidize the farm, but um, typically those are related to uh, conservation mechanisms, and you can often get more money for those when you're causing a problem than when you're not causing a problem. Uh, earlier we heard you talk about um, how you rotate between regular pasture and, and silver silvopasturing. Uh, that can be better for the environment, but how scalable is it, and are you seeing more of this being done in our region? Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of interest over the last 10 years in silvopasture, and um, it, it's very scalable. The thing is, we have, we have a number of technologies right now that make a huge difference, and they're, they're simple. I mean, portable polywire, um, high tensile electric fencing around the, around the perimeter. These things allow us to move animals really easily and really quickly. And um, the other thing is, a lot of it is just a change of the way farmers are practicing things, and in a way, for them to learn how, how to work with their animals, and their animals also to work, how to know when to work with them. So when I'm going to move my cows, I just stand on the edge and I just call them down and they all come and they sit, stand at the gate and then I open the gate and they go through the next pasture. Um, whereas the first time you do that, it sure isn't, sure isn't that easy. Um, and so it's, it's really about learning the new farming systems and learning which technology can work really well, um, such as, I mean, even just tanks of water that you can easily move with an um, automatic float valve. So you don't have to water the animals on the pasture every day you just make sure you have water in a essentially a hose going down to a to a tank with a float valve and that saves you oh two hours a day and and you know loads with a tractor to move a, a tank of water it's just there's a lot of technology out there that's very simple that can do a lot for um for moving cows and, and grazing there's even gps collars now that will track how much forage your animals are taking in so one of the challenges with pasture related to like real production ag has been that you don't know how much your animals are eating um, unless you're really trying to gauge how much the pasture is going down. But with these new technologies of collars, and I don't utilize these, but they're out there, you can actually, uh, especially for dairy, you can monitor how much each cow is, is intaking over the course of a day. Kind of uh, like a Fitbit for a cow. <laughs> uh, Allison Johnson's also with a sustainable food policy advocate with the Natural Resource Defense Council. Allison, we were talking about individual choices earlier. Uh, what is the NRDC um, doing uh, or seeing in terms of, of the restaurant industry? Because we know that people want more sustainable choices. How are they responding? That's a great question. Um, you know, we eat a lot of meals away from home, and the three largest food service companies in the U.S. have immense power to shape the climate impacts of food served in tens of thousands of cafeterias and restaurants across the country. 
Um, so the largest of these companies, Compass Group, has already made a public commitment to reduce its red meat purchases, and NRDC is working to convince the other two companies to make similar commitments. We're also surveying these companies' customers to find out how they're working to incorporate more plant-based foods into their menus. So there are a lot of important changes that individuals can make, but it's also critical to look to this broader food landscape um, and shift it to more plant-based work. We also survey uh, fast food chains every year, and this work focuses on antibiotics. Um, so this year we're, we're shining the light on beef production where um, the industry still has a really long way to go. But these huge buyers... Um, can invest in research, they can um, invest in farmers, and they have a lot of power to shape the climate impact of our food system. Uh, earlier, um, we were talking about you know income disparities in this country, and sometimes it, it can be hard to make certain food choices because of your budgets. And so I'm wondering, Allison, if you have tips for our listeners in terms of making sustainable choices that doesn't break the bank, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the reasons that we focus on these uh, large food companies is that they um, have the power to make sustainable choices mainstream. Um, there's a lot of wiggle room as far as affordability when you're looking at um, large food purchasers. And then at home, um, using meat as more of a seasoning or a, a side dish than the center of the plate is a great way to... Um, Keep that flavor if it's something you seek out while reducing your impact. And then the classic staple rice and beans um, is inexpensive, gives you full nutrition, um, and it's a great way to um, build climate-healthy practices into your daily menu. I want to thank Allison Johnson again. She's a sustainable food policy advocate with the Natural Resource Defense Council. Uh, Allison, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also with us was Dr. Joe Ore Fiche, who's a Connecticut beef farmer, owner and operator of Hidden Blossoms Farm in Union, Connecticut. Uh, Joe, before we uh, end the show, uh, what are what's your suggestions to listeners who want who want to uh, do more to support uh, local farms, and where where can we uh, see room for improvement? Yeah, so I mean, the best thing, in, especially in the Northeast, that folks can do is is buy from the farmer. So, you know the food system we lose a lot of value as it as it goes through the chain from you know distributor to grocery store to consumer um and so if folks can buy directly from the farm that's that's really the best the best option because then that money can go to the farmer to help them support some of the sustainable practices but also to learn about the practices that are going on on the farm because just because it's a small farm doesn't make the practices um necessarily sustainable and so um try to know your farmer and know know what they're what they're up to and um, I think there's a lot of resources in Connecticut for that, um, where folks can, you know, there's farmers markets, there's um, there's some land trusts, there's the Connecticut Farmland Trust, there's, there's a number of groups that, that are out there. There's the um, Connecticut Organic Farmers, there's the Farm Bureau. Um, so there's a lot of resources in Connecticut where folks can find a farm in their town. So we'll try to we'll try to link to some of those at where we live. But we want to thank you, Joe, again uh, for coming on. Also, director of the Forest and Agriculture Operations at Yale School of Forestry. Thanks, Joe. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks uh, to Kion Wolf and our WNPR intern uh, Panina. And uh, it's our fun drive too. So please support us with a call now.